Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. And welcome to yet another extravaganza. Multimedia across every known platform known to man. So um, we have Facebook Live. Hi, Hi Facebook. Livers, we've got vlogcast, we've got podcast. So, okay, to the first item of the day. Cheers! <laughs> One for the road? Don't mind if I do, Squire. But yes. only a couple of days a week. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Yes, booze, drink, alcohol. Always in the news. How much is safe to drink, if any? And, uh, of course, this week the news has come out that 18 to 24-year-olds, about a third of them, have now become teetotalers. And um, that's pretty much in line with the study that came out at the beginning of the summer, I don't know if you remember it, where it grabbed the headlines because it said that any amount of drink was really bad for you and could kill you. And, um, of course, people love that story. And the and every newspaper, every podcast, every radio station, TV station ran with that story. Drink was really bad for you. And sort of sneakily, the UK authorities sort of agree with that because they have dramatically reduced the amount of safe drinking, uh, the levels of safe drinking. And so, you know, there we are. But since then, there have been a few more studies that have come in, um, which have sort of shaded things a little bit more from the rather distinct black and white delineation of that first big study. And the first of those has said that actually drinking a little and often is actually very good for you. And in particular, it's good for your heart. And everyone sort of agrees with that, that alcohol, booze is good for your heart in the main, as long as you don't drink too much. So that first study goes against binge drinking, really, but saying, you know, a glass a day um, of wine or whatever is probably okay and will have more benefit than harm and will protect your heart. Then this week, a new study has come out says, well, that's not quite right because most people actually aren't heavy drinkers. Uh, they don't binge drink, but they drink a little. So this particular study from Washington University looked at all the light drinkers. We're not, we include, I'd include us in that. You know, we, we have a drink every so often. The light drinkers and how that affects their health. And um, they said, look, yeah, just about alcohol's okay for you. And it does protect your heart. But here's the real rider to this one. They said you should have four days drink-free. booze. You need four booze-free days. Because the three days you do drink will give you that sort of heart protection. But you carry on drinking, even if you have one glass a day, as the previous study says, actually increases the risk of cancer. And as you get older, that becomes significant. The, the the premature death rate, risk rate, is set at about 20% for people who do actually drink little and often. In other words, they have a drink every day. And whilst that is tiny and, and particularly small when you're a young person, by the time you reach your 70s, that becomes quite significant. So that's the, um, that's the latest findings from little and often to don't drink for four days. Well, I think that's quite interesting because, I mean, it, you know, the days of the week work really well for that. Mm. I mean, which is what we do. We don't mm. drink from Monday to Thursday unless no. we're going out to meet somebody for dinner. 
And then we have a drink on the weekends. Mm. And we're now discovering that that kind of abstinence is really good for the body to detoxify. Mm. You know, the important thing to think about with booze is it has a lot of elements that are good for you, particularly wine. It's got those those heart-healthy mm. um, properties mm. in, you know, a number of substances, particularly red wine. Um, but we can't forget alcohol is a poison. You know, our body needs to detox it. So it takes the good, but it also needs to get rid of the bad. And having that time to detox where you're not having anything makes a lot of sense when you realize it has to get filtered through the liver and the body is always trying to detoxify itself. I mean, that is one of the main reasons why binge drinking is so difficult. It overwhelms the liver mm. and its ability to detoxify. Mm. And, of course, why people always say, have a drink, then have a glass of water, because <sighs> you are f trying to flush the stuff out. Right. So this one makes the most sense to me in yeah. terms of how alcohol works, Brian. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, it's very hard to get, you know, clear guidance from health authorities or indeed from medical researchers, because... As we've seen, they're all over the place. And health authorities around the world are also all over the place. As I mentioned, the UK recently changed its safe drinking limits. But, you know, it's quite interesting to look what, what people do around the world. In America, for example, um, they suggest 196 grams of alcohol, which really roughly translates into 10 pints of beer or eight glasses of wine a week. Um, and surprisingly, the French are quite stingy about how much is uh, safe levels. And they're right down there to just 100 grams. And the, to really party, you go to Japan. Because there, you can have 280 grams of alcohol, apparently. And it's perfectly safe. So not everyone can be right, can they? Well, I mean, this is what made the research of a uh, medical researcher we know, Tony Edwards, so interesting. Mm. He did a book called The Good News About Booze, and he was looking at all the, all the received wisdom that we have about booze being uh, bad for you, putting on weight, all that kind of stuff. And he found almost everything written about it was mm. an urban myth, mm. and that actually in moderation booze is of all varieties is good for you mm. and but it's that's the issue really is mm. in moderation well, because uh, yeah. particularly as you age as you say mm. you know our ability to detoxify this subtle poison mm. is much much diminished and mm. that's when we get into trouble right right so and, and as i say overall you know, having four uh, days without booze is good and drinking for three days seems to give you some heart protection. Beyond that, seems to increase the risk of cancer. So there you have it. That's the latest on booze until next week, when no doubt we'll be told something completely different. Okay. Absolutely. In the meantime, have a drink. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> you know, never read the headlines. You know, and that's what we were talking about a moment ago about drink and booze. And, you know, it's easy to get very confused if you just read the headlines. And there were a couple, as I said, the uh, in the summer, there was the one about any amount of booze will kill you. Well, apparently the other headline grabbing piece of research over the summer was that any amount of uh, a low carb diet will also kill you. Now, you know, low carb diets are pretty trendy things at the moment, aren't they? With Atkins and all the rest of them. And um, this particular piece of research said, well, no, it will shorten your life. And yet again, 
You know, it was headline-grabbing stuff. The newspapers loved this. They liked nothing better than giving a good kicking to a fad diet, as they see it. So, you know, they all went for that. But, of course, you start reading the stuff, and none of this was actually true. And that um, they found that also a high-carb diet is bad for you. But then no one no one mentioned that bit. And of course, real, the real story is in the granular level of these studies, because really the point was, there's the type of carbs that you eat that are bad for you. It's the sugars, the white rice or bread that are actually bad for you. And of course, that got lost in the telly. And it was just the headline that made it through. And the real story got lost. So, I mean, Lynn, I know you're a great... Um, advocate of various diets paleo you're on right now um so tell us a bit more what you make of all that well i think the big problem we have is that researchers don't distinguish between quality of carbs mm. you know i mean <clears throat> michelle montignac the french doctor <clears throat> many years ago identified um that high carb diets you know diets where the carbs are such that they uh they convert into sugar quickly, are the things that give you diabetes or the things that put on weight. Mm. And when he was dealing with his diabetic patients and putting them on a low glycemic diet, that meant foods that convert into sugar slowly. He found that not only did they control their diabetes, they also controlled their weight. Mm. Now that's been taken one step further with the paleo diets where they say no grains, not just low sugar grains like brown rice, or even pasta is okay on the, you know, hard pasta cooked um, is okay on the Montagnac diet. It's a no-no on the paleo diet. But the point is that these diets are all looking at the quality of carbs. And the big thing to understand is that all grains turn into sugar at some point, And the refined grains turn into sugar faster. There also are some starches that convert into sugar, like French fries. Um, you know, those kinds of potatoes, certain ways you make potatoes, make it a very high-carb uh, food, a very high-glycemic food. Even beer, one of the worst ones there is, unfortunately. So it's really all about the quality of the carbs. The only thing I would say, the one caveat I would say, Brian, mm. that isn't really being looked at, and I've just started looking at it, is... When you have a very high protein diet, like you do with a paleo diet, where you're cutting out grains and you're just having vegetables, fruits, and you know, and and proteins, one thing you have to watch is not having too much red wheat, red meat, mm. and too much high purine foods. And those are foods that can give you things like gout. They <clears throat> increase the crystalline that goes between your joints. This isn't written about much with the paleo diets, which are considered so healing and healthy and everybody's losing weight on them. But that's one thing to keep in mind. Mm. I think it's really important mm. to vary the proteins you're getting so you're not just having loads and loads and loads of red meat and you watch certain substances like mushrooms, for instance, um, even <clears throat> excessive wine can all give you a high purine diet and that right. could predispose you to to this kind of specialized yeah. arthritis. And I think also what comes across to me, not just with this research, but with a lot of research about food and diets, 
is that you know these doctors really don't know very much about the subject. I mean, they're not educated in it. They don't no. learn it at uh, medical school. And I think there's always a danger that they just make big mistakes. They make big howlers because they don't really understand the subtleties of nutrition. And so they make these rather fundamental mistakes, which nonetheless grab the headlines because it is, you know, good stuff. It sells newspapers, but it really doesn't help people. And I say doctors don't know. You know, I made a pact with myself years ago. Never write about Morris dancing. I know nothing about it. And maybe doctors should say the same about nutrition. (laughs) And the thing we have to also remember, um, you know, sometimes in the media there is the subtle influence of the industries. And one of the biggest and most powerful besides the pharmaceutical industry is the big food industry, meaning processed food. And processed food is all of the white stuff. It's all the stuff that's in a package. And they have tremendous influence now on the powers that be. So really take that that all of that advice with a grain of salt and not mm. a grain of sugar. Mm. And uh, certainly, if it is, it should be healthy sugar, shouldn't it? So brown sugar. <laughs> Only coconut sugar. Or coconut sugar. Or okay. stevia. Stevia. Okay, thanks. Heart and mind, body and soul. You know, most of us get there's a link between the two and maybe medicine is slowly catching up with that idea that we are complex, multidimensional beings. I mean, your work has always really emphasised that, but medicine hasn't. But, you know, there's a study just come out which rather underlines the point because it talks about a leaky gut. Now, this is a massive problem, especially in the West. And they say that, um, you know, they always link diet and lifestyle to uh, being causes of a leaky gut. But what is really interesting is this new study has said, yes, but a bad relationship with our partner can also actually cause a leaky gut. Where, you know, we're in a stressful relationship where maybe we're rowing all the time, arguing. And all this can actually affect you know, our gut health. And we all know now that gut health is the portal to all health. And, you know, so that our relationships therefore have a direct effect on our overall health, which is sort of, not many people are going to be surprised by that. It seems to be pretty obvious. And yet to medicine, this is revelatory. Yeah, because as you say, I think the medicine looks at the body as a chemistry set and says, here, I'll give this. If you've got a leaky gut or you got something else, I give you a pill and that'll fix the thing. And they don't think of us as dynamical systems that are hugely affected by our environment. Mm. You know, Dr. Leo Galland um, once famously said, called it four pillars of healing. Mm. And he looked at <clears throat> not only diet and exercise, but environment and community. And environment really had to do with, and community, both with, you know, really with relationships. And we now are beginning to understand that our relationships, our interrelationship with our environment, the people we're with in particular, are going to play a huge effect on our, our, um, our health. I mean, besides this study, I found an amazing study showing that just one single argument with your partner can delay wound healing by an entire day. So if you had a cut, 
and you had an argument with somebody, your wound would take, your, your cut would take a day longer to heal than it would normally. Mm-hmm. And so just scale that up. Just think about all of the illnesses people have and get and how a bad relationship may be the little furnace that's firing this thing or certainly stoking it. Um, and I think the other thing that's really interesting, too, is to look at all of the literature about the power of community, Brian. Mm. You know, when I look at this, I find, you know, the studies that I've looked at where it's shown that with certain populations, it doesn't matter what they eat, believe it or not. What's most important is whether they have close community ties. Mm. And that's the thing that becomes their ultimate vitamin pill. Mm. And so relationships it's really important for for good health to have good relationships and particularly the one with your your nearest and dearest your partner sure sure. i mean this study from ohio state university looked at this quite closely and found that um, people who had the most hostile relationships with their wives or husbands or partners had 79 percent more bacteria in their blood and that bacteria came from their gut Mm-hmm. So it had an enormous effect on the, on their overall health, and and it happened quite quickly within hours of the rowing uh, um, dispute, whatever it was, um, the bacteria had escaped from the gut into into the blood. So it's it really is very significant, and then one that is you know, quite dramatically overlooked. I think when we all bang on about diet and all the rest of it when this is so key you know the social interaction that we have we are social animals and and that's true in the home as well as in the community isn't it well and the other thing that's so interesting is we're also you know creatures we have a population living inside us Mm. of bacteria and they play a beneficial role a lot of the time but they can also be um you know our enemy too and a lot now we're seeing that a lot has to do with our emotional state as to whether or not that bacteria are mm. friends or enemies mm. and whether or not they're you know that army that lives in there is going to help us mm. uh, against other foreign mm. invaders mm. or be the invader themselves yeah um, and the, they this is very interesting what you just said because they this part of this part of the study found that the bacteria was also making its way to the brain mm. so you then into a vicious cycle where you're rowing with your partner and this bacteria could actually be affecting the way you see the world and all the rest of it, which could trigger depression and uh, an inability to cope with, with these angry outbursts. So very, very important. Very Absolutely. Important. Surround yourself with people who love and support you, mm. bottom line. Right. Thanks, Lynn. Now, a statement from the Office of Self-Evident Truths. There is no such thing as a safe drug. Now, we always all know that. I mean, once upon a time, remember, you used to get this thing called the Physician's Desk Reference. It probably was the single biggest book on planet Earth. It was massive. And what it did was list every single side effect of every prescription drug. And it was enormous. It was a fascinating read. I read it every night before bed, but you know, but it was, you know, it was just how it is that every drug has a knock-on effect, and they never quite understood well why. But now they do. Well, they're getting to know why. Brigham and Women's Hospital researchers have done some computer modelling and had a look at a number of drugs. They looked at over nine hundred 
drugs that have already been approved as safe and and all the rest of it by the um, by the dr U.S. drug regulator, the FDA, and found that they had side effects that no one had even known about and hadn't even spotted. I mean, no, no doubt the poor patient had noticed it, but that's about as far as it had gone. They haven't. It hasn't been recorded as officially the problem, and it's simply because of the way that drugs are made. They're made to you know treat a a, a symptom or symptoms. But it doesn't end with that because we're more complicated than that. And what, of course, it does, it has a knock-on effect. Not only does it affect the disease protein, which is which it's targeting, it has loads of unintended targets and which affects biological processes that it shouldn't be affecting. But it does. And this seems to be true pretty much of every single drug out there. So now they sort of know why. I mean, as I say, again, you know, not really that, amazing but it's interesting to note that you know this idea of a drug that treats a problem which is recognized because of a range of symptoms is just a complete myth absolutely brian and once again what they don't understand you know the new biology coming forward is showing not only are we exquisitely influenced by our environment you know, that things like genes just sit there like the keys of a piano waiting to be played. And what plays them is our environment. You know, the mm. food we eat, the mm. water we drink, the friends we have, the sum total of how we live our lives. That determines whether those genes get expressed mm. for all of the myriad systems and processes that happen in our, in our daily life. But the other thing they fail to understand is that the way the body works is far more complex than a linear system. It's not true that when you take uh, tab A, it slots into slot B. You know, you take a drug, it's supposed to do that. It's supposed to go into slot B and nothing else. That's never what happens. Mm. It goes into slot C, D, E to Z, to yeah. Z. Mm. You know, it goes on and on and on affecting all kinds of systems through our body. And that's why we have these side effects, because we cannot target drugs to just do one thing without affecting loads of other things. Mm. So there you are. Not great news, but important news and something to bear in mind, I think. I think important news, and that's why we continue to do what doctors don't tell you. This is our October issue, by the way. Really fabulous. Um, and... What we try to do always is to provide better alternatives because we know drugs have side effects. Mm. Okay, thanks, Lynn. Good deeds, important things to do. We should all do good deeds every day. You should especially do a good deed if you're a cancer patient, it seems, because people who do good deeds are living longer and they're even reversing the problem. And why is this? Because this is a strange nerve in the body, which I know you're about to tell us all about, called the vagus nerve, which seems to have a very profound effect on our overall health. And it can be triggered through uh, compassion and gratitude, meditation and yoga, all the good things that we, we like to talk about. And um, people who can stimulate their vagus nerve um, um, are surviving up to four times longer than Scrooge would. 
<laughs> so, um, vagus nerve, Lynn, tell us all about it. Well, the vagus nerve is the longest nerve in the body, Brian, and mm-hmm. it starts in the neck, and it kind of winds its way throughout the body, um, uh, attaching to all the major organs. And it's also involved in the release of uh, hormones like uh, oxytocin, which has a you know uh, <clears throat> is released when we're we're loving, we take care of children things like that. So it's a feel-good nerve. It's a love nerve. But it also has a profound effect on our immune systems. And that's the really interesting part of it. When we do something for someone else in any regard, even thinking compassionately, say about starving children in Africa, we activate this nerve and it does two amazing things. It, first of all, refreshes our immune system. So I'm not surprised your cancer patients um, were getting better by doing for others. Um, But it also has another amazing effect, which is, and this is a really pertinent one now, where we face so much division in Europe, in America. It has a profound effect on our ability to connect with people who are not like us. Mm. We feel closer to the other. And so these kinds of things would mean that that's kind of a virtuous circle. So we feel closer to people not like us, so we want to do more for them. And people we usually have acts of kindness toward are people not like us, the sick, the poor, all of that. So, And it also accords with all the research I've looked into altruism um, for my last book, The Power of Eight. Um, I was very interested in why little groups of intenders were creating kind of vortices of healing. People were getting healed Mm. and are getting healed in an instant in these little groups. And I found that when you look at altruism, so, you know, sending loving intention or prayer to someone who's got a health challenge, Mm. um, whenever you do anything like that, people who do that live longer, happier, and healthier lives. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's the old saying, Brian, do unto others. Yeah. They and weren't I, wrong. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think it's worth giving your book a proper plug. You mentioned it en passant, <laughs> as they say in our Paris office. But, you know, it's a pretty remarkable book, which is now out in paper. Right? It's called The Power of Eight. Lynn has written it, of course. And um, it's a must read because, um, you know, she's done thousands of pieces of research uh, studied the effects of this, where small groups of people are intending, thinking of, praying for, whichever term you want to use for it, somebody else, and the extraordinary effect that it actually has on the person, not what being intended for, but as well as the per- intendees, and um, f- fundamental things happen in their lives, uh, things improve, things shift, their health improves, all sorts of things happen. You know, biologically, whether it is because they're stimulating the vagus nerve or something's happening beyond that, because, I mean, physically we we could measure it as being the vagus nerve, but maybe something above that is actually happening, and the vagus nerve is the communicator or the aerial for that activity. I mean, we don't know. But nonetheless, something very profound does happen, and I urge every listener to buy this book. It's the single most important book to buy this year. And with Christmas coming, 
Why not buy two? So um, there we are. I think we're sort of running to the end of our time for another week or whatever it is we do this. And um, thank you, Lynn, for, as always, being the smart one of the two of us. <laughs> and um, we look forward to talking with you again. So stay well. I'm Brian Hubbard. I'm Lynn McTaggart. And don't forget, it's out now, Regrowing Cartilage. You'll find it only here in What Doctors Don't Tell You. Thanks a lot.